How many times have you seen the bumper sticker that says, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven? I know I've seen that bumper sticker several times, or you may have seen it on a sign somewhere. It is true that Christians are forgiven when they're walking in the light. But this morning we're going to be looking at perfection. Not too long ago, I had a discussion with a man about perfection. And he was speaking of and asking the question, well, as a Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, do you do everything perfectly? Well, I thought about that, and I thought about, well, what does really, what does it mean to be perfect? Now, the Bible mentions the word perfect, and of course, Webster's Dictionary defines it as being entirely without fault or defect, satisfying all requirements, corresponding to an ideal standard or abstract concept, faithfully reproducing the original, lacking in no essential detail, and complete. Now, there are times that the word perfect carries different meanings, and in the Bible, most of the time, it carries the meaning of completeness. So I thought about this idea of Christians being perfect. So this morning we're going to look at three degrees of perfection. It is the case that we do not always do everything just exactly the way that it needs to be done, whether it's following God or whether it's in other areas of life. But as we look at our lives and we, as we look at what God requires of us, he does require perfection. Now, I don't mean that he requires that we do everything exactly right all the time. That's his desire for us to do that. But God commands us to follow his way, to walk in the way of righteousness. Now, some people say, well, you cannot follow the law of God perfectly. Well, it's not a matter of not being able to. It's a matter of that we don't. God has never given a law that man could not follow. As a matter of fact, uh, the parents of John the Baptist were said to have followed God's laws completely. In all goodness. Therefore, they did it completely. But as we look at what does it mean, or what is a degree of perfection? Well, as our lives are dedicated to God, we are dedicated to following His Word. There's not one command that God has given us that we cannot follow. Now, we may not follow it for various reasons, but it is not the case that it is impossible. But as we look at perfection, we're going to look at, can a Christian be perfect? The first area we're going to look at is obedience to the gospel. Now remember the idea behind perfection is completeness. As Webster tells us, satisfying all requirements. What has God required us to do? Well, when it comes to obeying the gospel, we know that we're required to obey the gospel. As Paul talks about in Romans 10, that not all had obeyed the gospel. Not all had followed the gospel. We're told in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, as Paul mentions in that context there, that those who do not obey the gospel 
will suffer eternal condemnation. So that tells us that we must obey the gospel. But can we obey it perfectly? When we look at the fact of completeness, satisfying all requirements, we can be perfect in obeying the gospel. So what do we look at when we look at obeying the gospel? We look at the things that is required for a person to become a child of God. And of course, Romans 10, 17 says, faith come without hearing, uh, by hearing. Well, that tells us that faith comes by hearing the word of God. So we have to hear the word of God in order to follow it. A person that doesn't hear the word of God, they can't follow it. So we see that we can hear God's word. We have it before us. We have it in our lives. And we're to hear it. And that doesn't mean just listen to anything, any way, and accept anything that comes down the road. That's not what Paul is talking about. Had to hear the truth. Have to understand at that time, the Jews, before the cross of Christ, had followed the law of Moses for years. That's what they knew. That was the law they were under. And then when the gospel came, when John the Baptist started preaching, the kingdom was at hand, and then Christ preached. And at that beginning point, things were going to be different. They would no longer be under the law of Moses. So therefore, they had to look at what was coming from Christ going to the cross. The change of the law. But when we talk about hearing the gospel, we're to do exactly that. Hear and understand. This word hear means to understand, to perceive. Not just to hear something audibly. When you look at those words, if you go and do a word study on the word hear you will see that it means more than just hearing something audibly, more than just the sounds. So can we hear the word of God perfectly? Absolutely. Next, can we believe? We can believe because God tells us what to believe, whom to believe in, and that can be done. We can satisfy the requirements of believing if we will listen correctly. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. Telling the people at that time that they needed to believe on him. Without believing on him, there was no hope. Without believing on him today, there is no hope. Because Christ is the Messiah. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. In John 12, 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Jesus says we must hear. And when we hear, we accept, we believe in Jesus, we have done that correctly. We have done that perfectly when we follow the scriptures. Now, do people hear incorrectly? Absolutely. Because there are people in the world who say, well, all you have to do is just believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that's all it takes. Well, you know, Jesus has a lot more to say than that. You know, it wouldn't even taken one page to write that down. So Christ had a lot more to say about believing. Another area, and we touched on it a little bit in class this morning, is that of repentance. Repentance means turning away from that which is wrong when following God, when we're talking about the spiritual matters. Turn away from that which is wrong and follow God. Acts 17, 30 and 31 tells us, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because there's going to be a judgment day. If there was no need to repent, God wouldn't have told us to repent. But that repentance means following God. 
Can we follow God correctly? Absolutely. Second Peter says the same thing. When Peter says that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a reason for that. God commands all people to repent. Why? Because there's going to be a judgment day. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because we must give an account of what we've done, good or bad. So repentance means turning to God and following God's way. And then, of course, there's another side of repentance. As, as Christians, when we do something wrong, we need to repent of that and to continue to walk in the light, 1 John 1.7. Paul tells us that we need to confess the name of Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says that confession is made with the mouth unto salvation. You might think, well, that's, that doesn't seem like much to confess Christ. But yet there were those that would not confess Christ. In John 12, 42, there were those that believed Christ. They believed who he was. They understood who he was, but yet they would not confess Christ. Why? Because they would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their position. You know, people are like that today. They will make decisions based on the fact that they can stay where they are. As we see in John, the fact that those leaders, those high priests... They rejected Christ because they did not want to lose their position. But can we confess? Paul says we must confess Christ. We do it with our mouth. Can we do that? Absolutely. What about baptism? Can a person be baptized perfectly when it's done according to scriptures? There are people who just going down in the water does not mean that a person has been baptized correctly. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, you teach baptism only. I've never preached baptism only. The church has never preached baptism only. Is it absolutely essential? Yes. But it's not the only thing. There are many people who baptize, but do they baptize correctly? That's the key. Is it done correctly? We have an example where it was not done correctly. In Acts the 19th chapter, when Paul was in Ephesus and he ran across the Disciples there, he asked them what they had been baptized unto, and they said, unto John's baptism. Well, at that time, John's baptism was out of, uh, it was no longer in effect. It ended at the cross. And this was a long time after the cross, and they had been baptized according to John's baptism. Well, he said, well, John's baptism was baptizing for Christ that would come, but now it's different. So what did he do? He baptized them correctly. So that shows us that people can be baptized incorrectly. So we can, and Jesus says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We have many examples. Acts 2.38 on the day of Pentecost when the church was established. Acts 4.4, there's one baptism. Uh, Acts 8, look at the eunuch. So these people did it correctly. Why? Because they obeyed the instructions. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, in that context in there with what was going on, when Peter spoke to those uh, people that day, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Did they repent and were baptized? Absolutely. We're told that in the text. So they did it according to the instructions. They did it to satisfy the requirements that were put to them. 
So a person can't obey the gospel perfectly when it is done according to God's word. Another thing that we can be perfect in is our worship. Now, this is a broad topic for people in the religious world about how you worship, when you worship, what you do in worship. Does it really matter as long as you're honest and sincere what you do? Well, honesty and sincerity doesn't always mean that a person is going to do things right. You can be honestly wrong about something. Paul, when Paul was persecuting the church, he said he did it in all good conscience. He thought what he was doing was right. But he come to find out it wasn't right. He said, I did it in all good conscience. So a person can be sincere and do, be in the wrong, although they're, they're sincere about it. But what does the Bible say about our worship, New Testament worship today? Are we given a pattern? Are we given a guideline about what we can do? Well, first of all, we need to be aware of Colossians 3.17, where Paul says, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means by the authority. Well, that means that we can't do just anything we want to do. We have to follow what has been set out for us in the New Testament. Can we find the things that we do in the New Testament? Does that mean that just because something is not mentioned in the Scriptures that it is okay to do that? Well, according to Colossians 3.17, it's not because we must have authority for whatever we do. We know that if we look at the commands, the examples, the inference or implications, we can tell whether we should be involved in something or not, whether something is accepted of God. So when we look at worship, of course we know, according to what John wrote for us in 424, that we must worship in truth and in spirit. That means according to God's word, truth, and spirit, making sure our hearts are right. There have been those that accuse the church of just going through the acts and not having our heart in that. Therefore, we must change worship. In order to get our heart in it, we must change God's word. Well, if a person comes into, God, into the assembly and they're not worshiping according to uh, truth in their heart, if they're not doing what's right, then that's a personal problem. That doesn't mean we have to change God's word in order to get that person to do what's right. We want everyone to worship in spirit and in truth, but we can't do that when we change just because somebody's not doing it. Some areas of worship that we find set for us, a New Testament pattern, and there are those who disagree with the pattern but Paul talked about form of sound doctrine, obey from the heart that form of doctrine. We find the pattern all the way through the New Testament. In Acts, the 20th chapter, verse 7, we find that the disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread. There have been those who will say, well, that just talks about one day. That doesn't mean that you have to meet every Sunday. Well, if you go and you do a word study on the first day of the week there, Actually, in the Greek, it means the first day after every Sabbath. Well, when was the Sabbath? It was on Saturday. So if it's the first day after every Sabbath, so what, what do you have? You have the first day of the week. 
And there are other reasons why that the first day of the week is important. Our Lord and Savior was risen on the first day of the week. That's one of the most important things we have. But we see that they came together on the first day of the week. One thing was to break bread. That's the Lord's Supper. Another thing they did, they heard a message from Paul. Now, when we look at our acts of worship, what we do, we have giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, when Paul says that we come together on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. We see that pattern of them giving. Now, this was, diff- this was uh, you know, a little bit different time when Paul wrote this as from when what was written in Acts. So we see that they continue to worship on the first day of the week. Paul says when you come together on the first day of the week, common sense will tell you that's the first day of each week. But we find that the... Uh, the brethren gave. Also, there have, has been contention about or argument about the fact, well, they were to give for the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That's the only reason they gave. Well, we know that they had a treasury. We know that they gave. How? Because Paul talks about in the book of Philippians the fact that the church at Philippi had supported him. We find Ananias and Sapphira doing what? bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Now, the apostles didn't take that money and put it in their pocket. Where did it go? It went into the treasury. So we see the fact that Christians gave into a treasury. So, yes, when Paul mentions 1 Corinthians 16, talking about uh, the collection for the saints, that was one reason. But it also established a pattern of them giving when they came together on the first day of the week. Singing. We find the church singing. That was in their worship. You want to go in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those three chapters there deal with worship, the assembly. But we also see the fact that nowhere in the New Testament is there ever mentioned the fact that the brethren were worshiping with instrumental music. People say, well, you got psalms there when he says talk about psalm, uh, hymns and spiritual psalms, uh, spiritual songs. The psalms there means that you can have an instrument. Well, what they fail to look at is the command in the verse. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Colossians 3.16. We're also going to look at Ephesians 5.19 not fast. Because this is important. This is something that, that people overlook. But nowhere do we find an example of the church using instruments. Nowhere do we find the command to use instruments. And we don't find it inferred. Although people will say the the word psalm means instruments. The word psalm did not always mean instrument. You go and you do a, a, a study on that word and at times it meant just speaking. Speaking words. Or just singing. It did not always mean an instrument. But notice what... Paul says in 3.16, Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, that's the command, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart. And neither of those words, the definition of those words, never carry the idea of playing something. How are you going to teach God's word by playing an instrument. How are you going to admonish with an instrument? The word sing does not include an instrument. Can you play an instrument with singing? Yeah, absolutely. 
But look at the word. The word is to sing. What does sing mean? Vocally. Let's go back to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Once again, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You cannot speak with an instrument. The command is to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. People do not look at the commands in the verses. It's to sing, teach, admonish. And yet, just by looking at that, we connect that with the fact that we do not have a command to use instruments. We do not have an example where the church used instruments. And certainly not implied or there is no inference for the instrument. So when we sing without the instruments, we have done it perfectly. Also, praying. When we pray to the Lord, pray through Christ, we have done it correctly. And there are different things mentioned with prayer in the Scriptures. We're to pray for certain people. We're to pray uh, for those that are sick and things that are connected with prayer. And we find prayer is also in the assembly. As I mentioned earlier about the teaching part, Acts 20 and verse 7, uh, also 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What about the Lord's Supper? Now, we find the disciples coming together on the first day of the week to break bread. Why is it that some people will take the Lord's Supper once a month, once a quarter, once a year? Why is that? When we have example where they came together and they broke bread on the first day of the week. Well, people will say things like, well, if we do it every week, it gets boring. I've never had that problem. I never thought about that. Until somebody mentioned that, I never have even thought about that. But if it's boring to someone, they need to re-examine their heart. Because what is the Lord's Supper? It is a memorial to our Lord and Savior. We're to remember our Lord and Savior, the blood that He shed on the cross, the fact that He's going to come back. That's where we need to be focusing and to say that that is boring because you do it every week? We have the example set for us. Well, what about the emblems? People will oftentimes use wine on the Lord's Supper. If you look in the New Testament, the word wine is never connected with the Lord's Supper. It's always fruit of the vine. Wine can carry different meanings. It'll be unfermented or fermented. You have to look at the context when you see that word. But people use alcoholic wine on the Lord's Supper. The uh, disciples, our Lord, instituted it with the fruit of the vine. Now, some people evidently don't give God credit for thinking about things. There are several reasons why you would not want, first of all, there's no authority to use alcoholic beverage on the Lord's Supper, but how many young people obey the gospel? You take a young person that weighs less than 100 pounds and they take a cup of alcohol. What are you doing to that child? You're setting that child up to be addicted to alcohol, doing it one shot every week. What about a recovering alcoholic? I have been told that a recovering alcoholic, if they take one drink, it can send them back to where they were and become addicted once again. What about that? 
So there are just some common sense things that are connected with not using alcoholic uh, beverage on the table. Also, our bread is to be unleavened. Those are examples that were set. When we obey that, when we go with the unfermented uh, juice, and of course wine, the word wine has been used to describe the grape on the vine. So that tells you that that word is used in different ways, and people try to say, well, it talks about wine, so therefore we can use it. Well, wrong. Unfermented. Fruit of the vine. We use fruit of the vine. That's what we do. We use unleavened bread. We do it the first day of each week. We have done it perfectly according to the pattern set for us in the Scriptures. Now, remember, we're not talking about Everything that a person does in their life is perfect. We're not talking about that. But yet, the Bible talks about perfection. And that's what we're looking at now. Now, we've looked at obedience to the gospel. We can do it perfectly. Obedience in worship, we can do it perfectly. And what about obedience in life? As I mentioned, none of us can do things perfectly because of the way we are. But... Are we perfect? Now, this is where people don't understand how that we can be perfect as Christians. I've already mentioned the fact that 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us of our sins. I mentioned in class this morning, God cannot embrace sin, so therefore he cannot embrace us in a sinful state. That's why the blood of Christ continually cleanses us when we walk in the light. If we're walking in the light, that blood is cleansing us every moment. That's why we can be perfect. That's why we can be sinless in that sense. Turn over to 1 John 1.7. God knew that we were not going to be perfect. That's why... For those who have become members of the body of Christ, He has made it possible for us to be perfectly sinless in our relationship with Him. We've already see, uh, seen what uh, verse 7 says, but notice what verse 8 says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, we've got a way to be forgiven when we do sin, but yet the blood of Christ continually cleanses us so that God can embrace us as his children because he cannot embrace sin. So we walk in the light. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There are people, believe it or not, there are people who say, well, the New Testament has no commandments. It's a letter of love. It's a law of love. It's a law of Christ. It has no commandments. Well, then somebody didn't tell Jesus that. Because what did he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. He says, you are my friends if you do the things that I say. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? So, we are obligated, and it really shouldn't be an obligation. It should be a joy to follow God's commandments. But yet there are commandments that we must follow. And there are times we're not going to do it. There are times that we are not going to follow God's word as we should. That's why John says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Because we do have sins. 
looking at these things and connecting them, we can see that we as Christians can obey the gospel perfectly, we can worship perfectly, and we can walk in perfection when we're walking in the light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be of good comfort. He says, be perfect, be of good comfort. We're told to be perfect, but in the sense of being complete. If a person has not obeyed the gospel correctly, if they do not worship correctly, they're not doing it completely. And if we're not walking in righteousness in our daily lives, we're not being perfect. But when we follow God's commandments as He has prescribed for us, you know, and that's not unusual. We look at instructions all the time. When you get medication, you look at the instructions. When you get ready to cook something, uh, you look at the instructions on the box, unless you've already done it before. But we look at instructions. It's nothing unusual. There are instructions for us in the Scriptures. And when we fulfill those script, uh, instructions, those commandments, according to the way God has told us to, commanded us to, then we are perfect. The three degrees of perfection. There are many people who, unfortunately, reject the Word of God. Because they have already established their own beliefs, They've already been taught one thing and they've accepted it and they close their minds to anything else. But when we look at what we're commanded to do, if we want to please God, if we want to be a child of God, we must follow those commands. Being here this morning, if you have not obeyed the gospel, the commands to hear the word of God, believe Christ, repent of your sins, repent, live for God, confess Christ, and be baptized for the remission of your sins, you have not obeyed the commands of the New Testament to become a child of God. But you can do that this morning. You can render obedience unto God and His Word. And we encourage you to do that if you have not. And as a child of God, if you're not walking correctly in life, you know that you can take this time, if it's been in a public way, to get your life right with God. You know, we're never guaranteed another moment in life. Life is short enough as it is. So if you're debating whether to respond to this invitation, you have to realize your soul is at stake. But we pray that you'll come as we stand and sing.